You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today I'm delighted to welcome two very special guests, to talk about important legal issues in the online video industry. Tracy Freed is the founder of Freed Law and an adjunct professor at LMU's law program. Prior to setting up her own shop to focus on digital media, entertainment, and technology transactions, Tracy was a partner at DME Law and served as assistant general counsel for digital networks at Sony Pictures. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, James. Sean Spaulding is an independent entertainment and intellectual property lawyer who represents some of the most popular YouTube creators in the world. He is actively involved in nonprofit work, serving as an advisory board member for new media rights and as a mentor for the Rising Arts Leaders Program. It's great to have you, Sean. So let's start with a little bit of background. How did each of you find your way into law and then ultimately the digital video space? Let's see. At UCLA, I was a sociology major, and the thing that I liked most about sociology was the way you could come at different problems and sort of deconstruct them and analyze them from different viewpoints and, you know, come out with a different result. And that sort of really leads itself into the mindset of a lot, you know, law practice and the legal industry and both law being a huge construct and what makes up our society and why we do certain things and why we don't do certain things. So there is a natural interest there. And I pursued law. Um, I started my career at a large uh, law firm, and I was focusing on corporate M&A, private equity, and intellectual property transactions. And I, I loved the intellectual property law transactions. I thought they were so interesting, and the clients were, you know, entrepreneurs. And so, you know, I really wanted to focus on that. And after a few years of grinding it out at the law firm and not sleeping and being yelled at all the time, <laughs> I was looking... Um, for my next move and focusing on in-house positions. So I, you know, took meetings at both internet companies and entertainment companies sort of pursuing that intellectual property path. And at the time this, you know, digital media industry wasn't prevalent. It wasn't around. People were doing things on the internet, but it was, you know, web 1.0. The term digital media wasn't talked about. It didn't exist. So for me, I wasn't pursuing digital media. I was just following this thread of, I like IP, you know, what's, what's going on here in the space? What can I explore? And what I started to see is something was happening. There was some sort of convergence, took meetings at the studios, and they were doing interesting things on the internet beyond just using it as a promotional vehicle. And that's when I saw, like, there's something cool here. Let's try to pursue it further. And then an opportunity came up at Sony. Uh, They had just acquired this popular user-generated video site at the time. It was called Grouper. They were rebranding it, moving it down to the studio, calling it Crackle. 
and it was going to be their next, you know, premium online ad supported content platform. And they needed someone to run, you know, all of business and legal affairs for it. And I said, this is cool. This is a cool opportunity. Whatever's going on here. I have no idea what this is, but this is what I want. Let's go for it. So I signed up and that's where I got into this space. And that's where I learned everything and, you know, figured it out on the job. And Sean, what was your experience? Oh, gosh. Uh, So I guess it started in high school. Well, maybe it started in fifth grade because uh, the only two things that I wanted to do were I wanted to make movies and I wanted to be a lawyer. And those things really didn't like connect together in my fifth grade head yet. But I realized, oh, lots of a lot of producers and things like that, they have legal backgrounds. It's all about negotiation. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I can do this. And so I went to uh, college for filmmaking. And so this is around the time that, uh, this is pre-YouTube, of course, but it's around the time where things like iFilm were becoming really big. iFilm and Adam Film. And I remember talking to friends of mine and we were like, oh my God, you could digitize a VHS tape and put it on the internet. Like I saw this page on the iFilm website. And so I'm like, wow, like we need to make a video and put it on the internet. This is like my only goal. Fast forward to the middle end of high school, I started working with brands like Sharp Television, Swiss Airlines and things like that, making uh, what was then branded content. So it's like, oh, no one will watch advertisements online, but people will watch short films with product integrations. And so this is before they figured out that, oh, influencers have their own distribution. So they just got college kids like me to <laughs> make them like insane videos. And so those worked out okay. I mean, I think that they weren't really willing to take a lot of risks back then in terms of, oh, I wanted to do something just completely insane. And they were like, oh, just make it a regular commercial. And uh, I realized that I didn't really have much of a future in this because my aesthetic sense didn't really overlap with what they wanted. And so I thought, all right, time for law school. Afterwards, it just so happened that uh, I locked into clerking for and then becoming the assistant director of a nonprofit called New Media Rights, which is pretty much exactly the type of place where I always wanted to go. I never wanted to work for a big firm. But, uh, Can you share with our listeners a little bit more about what New Media Rights does? Oh, yeah. So uh, New Media Rights, we are a nonprofit, and we provide either free or drastically low-cost legal assistance for independent creators. And so uh, lots of people who can't normally afford three, four, five hundred dollars $500 an hour for a lawyer, we help them for free. And particularly why we do this is that there's a lot of uh, what we call content bullying going on. So let's say you're a documentary filmmaker or a journalist who does something controversial. There are a lot of big companies with well-endowed legal departments that really want that type of thing not to be on the internet. And so we step in and we help those people for free. So you mentioned content bullying. What are some of the other key legal considerations that creative talent need to be aware of? It runs the gamut, especially now since uh, traditional overlaps with digital so much. It's pretty much... Anything that a traditional creative in TV, MCN contracts, book deals, I guess those are more traditional things. Uh, DMCA takedowns, that's more digital. I mean, it really runs the gamut. There's no one specific thing. 
And Tracy, what about media companies on the other side of the table? What are they focused on? Um, I mean, equally, they're focused on a whole gamut of issues depending on what exactly we're talking about. But I think, you know, when we're talking about premium content, I think one of the big considerations is just keeping up with the changing landscape of distribution platforms and how do we, you know, window this content? How do we figure out where we don't want this content? How do we restrict rights on where you're putting the content? You know, the things that we were thinking about early on in the days of, you know, first digital distribution was we didn't want to do a deal with Google or YouTube for, you know, certain AVOD rights and then have them build, for example, a Chromecast where you didn't see that coming or we didn't know it was coming or, you know, it was coming down the pipe, but no one envisioned that you could stream content from this little USB dongle. It was all new. And if they were to, you know, create a Chromecast that was SVOD supported and, you know, take that revenue from us, but still have the license, you know, rights to stream it through YouTube or something, if that were the case, those are the types of considerations you're concerned about from a media company standpoint, really sort of controlling the distribution of content and, you know, getting the most revenue from that distribution stream and not giving up rights and having, you know, the other side, the distributor take too much. So, you know, the example I always think about is what's coming next? Like, are we going to stream content on your refrigerator and how do we feel about that when that happens? So you both have touched on how much the landscape is constantly changing, right? Part of your job as an attorney is to stay ahead of those trends and predict, you know, if we're negotiating an agreement, not just how that impacts the business or creative talent today, but what, what is the implication of that three, five, 10 years from now? So what are some of the important legal issues that are being hotly contested, debated, or having case law written around them today? So there's so much stuff being talked about today. I mean, it changes so fast that it is incredibly difficult to keep up with. But I think sort of the top considerations of legal issues is copyright, DMCA is probably always being discussed at every single moment by every person. Like, should we change the DMCA? Is it up to speed with what's going on now? This was, you know, promulgated in 1998. That's been a big you know, gap of time and there's a lot happening. A lot has then. changed in digital since yeah. 1998. Um, so let's break that down for people, right? DMCA stands for Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And John, do you care to give a bit of a definition? Oh, great. Uh, yeah, so the DMCA is a very complicated thing, but simplified. It's what allows YouTube to exist. People can upload millions of hours of copyrighted footage. And normally, if you were republishing that as a traditional publisher, right, if you were a newspaper and you republished a copyrighted image, the newspaper would be held liable. But the DMCA says no, as long as you follow these certain steps. And one of those steps is to follow this notice and takedown procedure. And so as soon as a content owner, like Crackle, for example, sees one of their uh, pieces of content on YouTube and somebody uploaded it, they send a specific uh, formulaic letter to YouTube. And as soon as YouTube sees that it meets these certain requirements, uh, they must take this down. And so then the content uploader if they think that it was sent to them in error and the content was taken down in error, they can respond with their own counter notice. And depending on a lot of different things, uh, YouTube can say, yes, we'll put it back up or no, uh, you guys have to sue each other. And so that's the DMCA, the short version of the DMCA. I guess why it's complicated is that lots of these takedown notices often get sent in an overreaching way 
So a lot of content creators sort of get these notices that they don't understand necessarily. And from, I guess, the, uh, the corporate perspective, it's difficult to police all of these infringements, right? You can't just have somebody whose job is literally to send these formulaic letters for the thousands of hours of content from these millions of uploaders every day. Do both of you feel that the DMCA provisions do a good job of enforcing copyright and protecting intellectual property rights for content owners? It's tough. It's really tough. You know, from an academic perspective, the DMCA was written at a time where we wanted to continue to see growth on the internet. We, you know, Congress didn't want to stifle that growth. So they came up with these safe harbors to try to figure out a way to, you know, marry the two together and figure out a way so that businesses can continue to have some flexibility in this space. So from a content creator's perspective, from like a media company, it is extremely, extremely difficult to have that burden fall on you to police your copyright. Recently, Taylor Swift, Swift's album, 1989, it was released in 2014, and they hired a whole team of employees to essentially search for unauthorized copies and they sent 66,000 takedown notices to various sites about it and had 114,000 blocks on YouTube made through Content ID. So this is a massive amount. Like This is a whole enterprise. You have to hire, hire teams and teams of people to really sort of police your content. So the question is now, is that burden still you know, falling on the right side of the spectrum? Or since we have all these technologies now, Content ID, filtering, other things... Should that burden shift a bit more to the technology platforms to help fight this battle because they're equally participating in the revenues that are being created? And perhaps profiting in an outsized way compared to what the content owners are benefiting from the equation. And from a creator's perspective, it's actually good to empathize a little bit from a corporate perspective because these teams of people literally have to be hired and often these teams don't really have very much i mean it's not like a team of lawyers it's just a team of people following a certain rubric of rules and so you might get a lot more false flags of things that are fair use for example because you have so many people who are just sort of hired to do this manual rote flagging task and so if there was some way to make this a little bit easier from the corporate side, it would also be a lot easier for uh, sort of creators' rights lawyers, like on my side, to hold people who actually do it wrong more accountable because then they can't just say, well, it's not our fault. It was just our 50 other people doing this. And so, yeah, I think there could be some reform in that respect. I agree with both of you. In fact, in other episodes of the podcast, I've gone into detail about digital rights management, DMCA, and the notices associated with that, and technology platforms like YouTube's Content ID system, Facebook's rights manager system for administering intellectual property rights. There are certainly a number of challenges, right? Even if you just take one large content owner as an example, and I guess NBC Universal and the Olympics is pretty topical right now. They're not just combating piracy on YouTube and Facebook. They're looking at what's happening on torrent sites, what's happening on digital storage lockers and video streaming services. And now that live streaming is a prevalent phenomenon, that introduces a whole host of new IP protection and copyright infringement challenges. So it's, it's a thorny problem to solve. And today the burden is squarely on the content owners to identify and help police this content. Of course, there's technology to help facilitate that. But when you're operating across so many platforms and the viewership is fragmented, it becomes extremely expensive to do all of that. 
Yeah, and I totally, I also, you know, it is a thorny issue because I do empathize with the technology platforms too when you're coming up with something that's innovative like live streaming that has all these new issues of, you know, copyright issues since it's live. You know, how do we even build a technology filtering type tool to help with that? You know, that's not an easy task either, so. I'd love your opinion on this (laughs) because I'm always from the creator's perspective. I really have this feeling that, most of these big companies, uh, media companies, really hate the DMCA and they want to get outside of the DMCA and put all of these rights issues in-house. For example, Apple, when you have a dispute with iTunes, one of the, they actually don't even take your DMCA requests, which is, which is completely outside of the law, but nobody's going to fight them on this. But they put it inside of their own sort of uh, dispute resolu- internal dispute resolution system because they don't want anybody to ever argue that, I don't know, they've failed with the DMCA and now they're completely outside of it because that would ruin Apple's business. So, I mean, do you feel as if like everybody is trying to move these disputes in-house? I think it, it works to their favor from the Apple perspective right. to move them outside of the you know DMCA legal mm-hmm. system to this own in-house created system because they can build their own rules and should they have to break the rules or bend the rules, you know, they're right. in their own construct. So... And it's definitely easier for them to manage and there could be benefits there, but there could also be disadvantages to folks that could just use the legal (laughs) system to streamline what they need to do. If they're serious about battling copyright for, for a standard user, then, you know, it's difficult because you have to put your money where your mouth is and sue someone to really kind of go after your rights. If someone doesn't take down your content. And if you're within the internal system, uh, you're governed by the terms of use of these sites and platforms and everything, right? And all of these terms of use always say, we are not liable for anything for any reason. And so suddenly, if they move all these systems internally, they can have this free reign to do literally anything almost, right. at, at least from my perspective. YouTube does something similar, right, with Content ID. Right. And I think the intention is to create a peaceful resolution process. If I'm a creator and I get into a dispute with a large content owner, I have some protection to try and work that out before lawyers need to get involved. So I think it it is designed to help insulate and protect the legal system from being glutted with too many of these cases. Yeah, and I think their system is based on the sort of DMCA takedown notice procedure with some tweaks to it, you know, an expedited fashion and, and, you know, contractual obligations on both sides. Or alternatives to a takedown, right. such as a blocked video, a monetized claim, exactly. a claim, et cetera. Outside of Digital Millennium Copyright Act and some of the anti-piracy and, and constant protection issues, what are some of the other important legal issues of the day? I think one of the other big issues that's sort of hotly being talked about right now is the FTC sort of endorsement (laughs) rules for social influencers. And this came up recently, I think just last month with PewDiePie and Warner Brothers. And, you know, it continues to be this, you know, debate with the FTC coming out with more and more vigilant rules on how they want things disclosed and the space trying to keep up with what's a proper disclosure and what's not, but how do we keep this organic? It's definitely, it's a huge issue that's like difficult to tackle. So I think that's another hot issue. 
How are creators responding to that? Uh, so it was funny because with the rise of the MCNs in like 2010, 2011, you would see nobody would be talking about these disclosure things. It's just like, <laughs> oh, we're doing a brand deal, right? Like you just pretend that you like this thing, right? Even if you've never used it before. <laughs> and then slowly uh, there'd be, they'd tell you outside of the agreement, hey, can you disclose? But they knew that the influencer wasn't going to disclose it. And then they'd be like, okay, you kind of have to do this, at least in like the tweets that we tell you to do. And then it would actually be written into the agreement, right? And then so far, yeah, gradual so, yeah it's like this, this sort of gradual level of like, okay, well, maybe. and uh, I think it was Machinima. Or? Machinima got slammed pretty yeah. famously for this. For yeah, they did. Campaigns they were doing. And I think after that, it was just, all right, we, we can no longer, because the industry as a whole might be affected, right? Because the FTC, they don't enforce against many people. But when they do, they tend to sort of figure out like here's this one like rabbit hole of all of these people and then enforce against everybody yeah drop the hammer to to make an example and so what are some of the best practices that creators should take if they are involved in a brand campaign i've seen people use you know hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored other people will mention the brand or do a call out in the beginning of a video for instance and say you know hey i'm happy to do this for x brand that's agreed to sponsor my my video it's, it's all kind of voodoo for the most part because the, the FTC refuses to actually tell you exactly what they want because as soon as they do that, then people will just do exactly that and nothing else, right? And so the FTC puts out these guidelines and it's like, oh, you should probably do it this way. And so I would, I would say hashtag ad is probably a good sort of barometer about what you should do in a social media post, for example. I mean, disclosure by just saying straight up, this is like a sponsored thing. And then afterwards, you can just act normal, right? Like, like as long as people know that this is a sponsored thing. I mean, there's there something that said, I think there's some sort of opinion or uh, that said hashtag spawn, S-P-O-N, rather than sponsored, isn't good, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's in the guidelines. Right. What the, the the funny thing about what the FTC has put out is they put out these things that you know the industry isn't doing. So again, they don't want hashtag spawn because they the rule is supposed to be that it's clearly conspicuous to the end user that this is something that's being paid for. And they think hashtag spawn, the end user doesn't understand that that's abbreviated for sponsored. So you know, they, they're they like, oh, our audience, you know, is, is not that intelligent. They want ad. Actually, they don't even like hashtag ad at the end. What they really want is they want ad at the beginning of a tweet, which no one wants to do because no marketer thinks that that's, you know, organic or compelling or sexy at all. So no one's doing that. And then in terms of videos, they haven't come out with guidelines for videos yet. Or I think they have sort of opined on it a little bit, but... They want it to be in the first five, you know, five yes. seconds of the video. So you have to say it up front, you know, this is either sponsored by whoever, or you know, I've done this for this person, this is, you know, presented by so-and-so. And then they want it, you know, every, you know, so often within the video, depending on how long the video is, if it's a two-minute video, they do want you to splice it in there saying, once again, thank you to our sponsors, so-and-so for what this and that. They want it disclosed in... The description box below in YouTube above the fold as opposed to at the very, very end. So, you know, the theme is they want these things up front. They want them present. They want them clear. So 
The next phase of this is, you know, how do these rules transfer onto a new medium like Snapchat? You have five seconds of a video to disclose, you know, what this is. So what does that look like? There's no, you know, hashtag ad. I guess you can, you know, write it in, which doesn't look so nice. You don't have a lot of time to make the disclosure. So, you know, what is the happy medium here? What is the FTC looking for? And, you know, what is also going to be a compelling solution that isn't going to be abhorrent to a marketer? Clearly, their intent is to protect the end consumer. But as you said, perhaps in some cases, they're not giving the consumer enough credit. Would you guys agree that the FTC is a bit too far reaching in their requests and that maybe a it's more standard set of guidelines that were properly enforced and communicated to creators effectively would be a good solution? Uh, I mean, I think that would be totally antithetical of what they actually want to achieve, which is just to get people, like consumers, to understand what's going on. But I think the big takeaway is there's a continuum of how you do this. Like, hashtag spawn is probably not going to cut it because maybe some people don't know what sponsored is. But, like... The FTC is not going to enforce against any... They have lots of other people who are much worse bad actors to enforce against. And so if you sort of comply, right, and everybody in the industry is also has this idea that, okay, we'll mostly comply with Making this. Making a good faith effort. Right. Mm-hmm. The FTC will bother themselves with industries that are totally out of compliance. And so the goal is to push a little bit every year to get fans more involved with the idea that like okay we know something is sponsored and to get that whole thing where maybe at some point spawn will be okay because everybody just knows that spawn also means sponsored and at the same time it's like the industry just needs to keep the ftc out of their hair how do you think this impacts viewers are people aware of the issues that are being debated and do you think that when a viewer perceives a purely organic video versus something that is called out as being an ad or sponsored that that changes the way that they interact with or perceive that video yeah i think they do you know i think at the end of the day even though this is our business and we're trying to figure out ways to best make this work within the confines of the ftc at the end of the day we still we don't want consumers to not understand what's happening here. And if someone gets paid to promote a product to any end user, that's going to make you feel differently. If it's a organic and honest presentation of whatever they're doing, like the fans are going to like it. And if it's not, then, well, you should have tried harder. Another thing I'm curious to give both of your opinions on as it relates to legal issues in online video is consumer protection and privacy, right? There's all these video platforms now collecting your user data, understanding what you like, what you don't like, how you engage with your friends and family, you know, how much license should they have with this data? This was totally another topic that I was going to bring up also as a hot topic. But this one's also tough. And the funny thing about this is there's this amazing, very nerdy article written by Alex Kaczynski, who is an appellate court justice, really well known for being super intelligent, but also, you know, a, a character. And this article essentially says that he wrote it back in 2011, that consumers gave up their privacy the minute they signed up for supermarket rewards cards. And that's where it all started. They started profiling you. You know, if you're buying diapers, you're a mom. And the reason you gave up that privacy is for the discount, for the convenience. And it slowly trickled down. You know, next thing you know, on Amazon or eBay, 
you're going to save your credit card data because you're too lazy to type it in there. So you start trading off, you know, your privacy and notions of your privacy for convenience. So it's an interesting debate because this is how the internet functions. People do want to sort of trade off convenience for privacy, but has it gone too far? And do people understand what's being ha- like what's happening now and how you are being tracked and profiled and all the data that is being collected about you and what they are doing with it? Providing that data also gives additional benefits, right? So if we take the Super Mario Rewards card example, they might also send me special coupons or offers about the things that I actually buy, right? Or give me an easier means of finding recommended items for me on Amazon. Do you think that that those benefits are valuable to the consumers and thus outweigh the privacy trade-offs? That's sort of the balance because uh, on one hand, you have all these website privacy policies saying, oh, we're going to use this data to make your experience better, right? And I mean, in some ways, it's true. You see ads that are more tailored to you. Your your newsfeed suddenly only shows you stuff that you want to see. I mean, that's great. I mean, there's, of course, the other hand where... I think it's either a California law or a federal law back at the height of video stores where you couldn't even disclose someone's video rent, rental purchase history. And they thought this was really important back in the day because like... It's still true today. Yeah. The DPPA. <laughs> yeah, you, you might be renting some weird videos, right? And like, like there's sort of this public interest in not outing people as, uh, I don't know, their private proclivities of what if they really like superhero movies or whatever. But I think that is so much more relevant now because looking at somebody's YouTube history, looking at view history, looking at someone's Google searches, looking at the people who they happen to search for on Facebook. I mean, there is some study that you could actually tell when people would start dating by how much they searched each other in, <laughs> on Facebook and like how much they like liked each other's pictures and everything like that. And so now suddenly it's gone beyond just sort of having this vague idea of what someone might be like by looking at the history of what they do to something you can actually predict where someone is going to go during the day by their Facebook usage and the GPS on their cell phone, right? Like, yeah, I don't think the privacy trade-off is worth it for the convenience, for, you know, targeted ads. But at this point, it's too far gone. This is how our world works. Carrying around a cell phone in your pocket, to your point exactly, is tracking your every movement, your GPS. Like, there is so much now. It's the world we live in. So it's difficult to, to go back in time. At New Media Rights, we did a lot of stuff in 2012 with uh, privacy and consumers. Oh, you should know about your digital privacy. Uh, but it's funny that... Consumers actually don't care, right? They are scared at the idea that all this information is out there. But, I mean, you tell somebody, oh, but you can't use Facebook. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, Facebook's great. Like, I, I can deal with that because of the, the idea is so remote that anything might happen. I mean, it's sort of an interesting segue into uh, terms of use of these sites where it's like... No one reads them. Yeah, nobody reads them, right? And they agree to them anyway, and they get kind of upset. Like, you'll, every once in a while, maybe once a year, there'll be some scandal that says, like, Instagram can own your photos. And number one, it's 
probably doesn't say exactly that. Number two, they probably have been doing this since Instagram <laughs> existed. You just noticed now or somebody started a meme about how this is a bad thing. And number three, like, it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. But the problem is that we notice that New Media Rights is you can get people super excited about this for about 10 minutes in internet time. And then it's over. On the corporate side, in terms of following these sort of data best practices, only taking the data that you need to use, getting rid of it at certain points, encrypting it, all of these things, there's no accountability because at the end of the day, the public is only going to be upset about it for so long, right? And you might not ever get an FTC action until you're a huge company for something like this, yeah. or you have a data breach. And then, <laughs> and then it's a whole different story. Right. Your, points, your points are well taken. I think you're right. One, the pain isn't real enough for consumers to feel. Mm-hmm. And two, a lot of people don't understand that they're giving away the data in many cases, right? So much of this is obfuscated that a lot of people don't realize that Visa and MasterCard are actually in the data licensing business, that they make more money selling data than they do processing credit card transactions or making money off your float. And same thing goes for Experian, right? When you're getting a credit report, that data is all being collected and then relicensed to data management platforms and ad tech providers. So that, I think, is, is one big hairy problem that consumers will never be able to fully understand. But what do you guys think of platforms like LinkedIn that are actually willing to give this data back to those individual users for a fee? I can see anyone who's clicked on my profile if I'm willing to sign up for a paid subscription account on LinkedIn. I think it's I think it's great for the companies. I think it's terrible for people <laughs> who are using the sites. I mean, LinkedIn is fun. I mean, LinkedIn is interesting because like this is how they make money. It's all professionals dealing with professionals. But when you're talking about a, let's say a mugshot site where oh you can post mugshots legally, right? But we don't have to since it's legal and there's public domain or whatever. We don't have to actually take it down if you request it to be taken down. But we will take it down if you pay us $70, right? And then we'll post it on our other mugshot site that we own. And then you can pay them $70 too. That's that's sort of when it starts getting this this weird thing where, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, I know. I understand. <laughs> so lots, of, lots of sites sort of have that model. There's all those like public information sites that say, oh, you can take down your profile for X amount of money. I don't think that there's necessarily a digital video equivalent of that yet. But there no. Be, right? <laughs> Users end up chasing their tail. It's a little uh, predatory. Bringing this back to online video, do you feel that platforms like YouTube and Facebook do a good job protecting consumer privacy? I say no with a caveat that no one does a good job of protecting user privacy or data privacy. And we've seen that, especially over the last few years with all the data breaches. We have Target, we have Sony, we have Anthem, we have UCLA, we have Home Depot. Anyone now, their data is out there because they either shop at Target or you know had their health insurance with Blue Cross or any one of these providers. And those that, are just the breaches we know about. Right, and so, Everyone's doing a poor job, mostly because people didn't necessarily understand the vulnerabilities of what they were facing. And also when it comes to running a corporation and you're sort of running the show saying, I need to put in $3 million to $5 million on data security, or like, should we spend this budget here for revenue? The CEO is going to say, let's spend this money over here and we'll give you 500000 for data security. Do what you can do. So I think everyone's doing a really poor job with it. 
And from a non-corporate perspective, sort of the smaller startups, there's this mentality of uh, break things quickly, right? There's a mentality of, oh, we'll figure it out later. And so it's a lot of smart engineers who are very good at extracting people's data, but aren't necessarily very good at knowing what point is enough, right? Or being even careful or cognizant about why it's a good idea to make sure that this is safe or make sure that people know that you're doing it, right? And so they learn these things later, but it might create effects between the time where they learn their lesson and the time they start collecting. Let's switch gears a little bit. Now, Sean, you're an independent lawyer. Tracy, you worked in big firms, but you started your own firm. What is the hardest part of essentially being an entrepreneur in the legal profession? I would say, you know, there's there's different challenges along the way from, you know, starting your practice, building it, you know, different phases pose different challenges. I think the current biggest challenge is just really juggling it all. So, you know, not only doing the work for clients and, you know, giving them quality work product, but also keeping up with the industry from a business standpoint, keeping up from a legal standpoint and everything that's changing and evolving at such a fast pace. And at the same time, you know, still doing business development and getting out there and talking to people and keeping up your practice. So there's a lot of, you know, constant balls in the air and not enough time in the day. Probably one of the biggest challenges currently. I would would second all of that. Uh, I guess specific to, I don't know, digital entertainment, it's still sort of a game of young people hanging out at parties and deciding to make business deals. (laughs) And so... uh, I'm not really a huge like party guy, right? <laughs> and so it's very it's very difficult sometimes to just sort of uh, it's it's such an informal business still from the creator's perspective, right? It's not everybody's taking these like big board meetings and making decisions. It's people arbitrarily deciding that they're going to work together after they do a vlog at some party, right? And so I also think that the speed at which things happen is pretty challenging. Uh, I think it's great. I mean, like TV, you might be working on the same thing for six months. Digital, somebody has this idea that they want to do a video with this company or they want to do some partnership where they're going to form this new company. And it's like, oh, yeah, we just want to do it in like three or four days. It's like at the end of the week. Can we can we do that? And so it's, it's sort of an exciting thing, but it's also a very challenging thing because it's like a 24-7 profession, at least for me. Certainly sounds like it. What books have you read recently or or any good reads over the years that you can recommend? This is going to sound so cliche because it's, you know, a lawyer nerdy book. I promise you I read other books besides lawyer books. But I just finished reading The Notorious RBG, which (laughs) is Ruth Bader Ginsburg's um, biography that was, you know, written by these Two, two women, one started the Notorious RBG, you know, social account. So it's a cool take on her life and, you know, important issues both on the legal side, you know, on sort of feminist side of things, just cool facts about her. Such a good read. Totally recommend it. Uh, so maybe overlapping a little bit with the business and pleasure, uh, I think Masters of Doom is a very good book. It's a book about id software, uh, the company that made the one of the most popular video games of all time, Doom. They also made Wolfenstein 3D. They also made uh, Quake. 
And so it's, it details the two founders, uh, John Romero and John Carmack, and both of them are completely opposite personalities, and it sort of shows the rise and fall of their uh, partnership. I mean, it's both super entertaining, and it also has, I guess, useful things to uh, somebody who's interested in digital video, because it's like, oh, this was the start of the PC shareware industry, which back then was, I mean, it's like the same thing as like, like the advent of YouTube and everything like that. It's like two people in a room can make millions of dollars by hitting a key to launch their game on the internet. And that was like completely revolutionary in like 1993 when Doom came, 1992, yeah, two or three when Doom came out. And so there's, there's even this story to make Doom, they didn't have powerful enough PCs so they the place that they worked for they would steal the PCs at night and then code all night and then take them back to, yeah they got into a lawsuit about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, don't be doing that those sound like really good recommendations though thanks for sharing a few other rapid fire questions uh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received best piece of advice I have a good one yeah okay. it's actually not a piece of advice that I received it's a piece of advice that I read and it's a letter that Hunter Thompson wrote to a friend of his. His friend was seeking advice from him about you know, certain issues and problems. And the overall advice from Hunter Thompson was, I can't give you advice because I haven't walked in your shoes. I don't know what you want. I don't know what your end goals are. I don't know all these things. So I think Overall, I see this happening so much. People tend to give you advice based on who they are, based on the decisions they would make, based on their priorities, based on what they want, based on things that have happened to them in their past, things that they've like held against other people. So it's, it's sometimes really bad advice that's coming from people who actually really love you and care about you and are looking out for your best interests. So I would say, you know, listen to your own voice, listen to your own judgment take into consideration maybe thoughts and ideas from people, but you got to do what you want to do and what you think is right based on who you are and what your priorities are and really walking your own path, especially when it comes to being a lawyer. I think it's very easy for people to get stuck in, I got to do this, you know, very conservative path that everyone's walked, that everyone's telling me to walk. And if not, I will never be a good lawyer and like my world will fall apart where there's a lot more creative paths that you can walk and things you can do. So I think that's the, that's my good piece of advice. So I thought about it. I really like Jim Henson. He's one of the few people who I actually sort of like look up to as a creative person, a business person. And uh, he has this quote where somebody asks him, why do you do the things that you do? Why are you so excited to work every day? I mean, he, he never called in sick. He, he never got sick. I mean, he died from pneumonia and he didn't go to a doctor because <laughs> he never got sick. And so he said, I just want to do things, in his Kermit voice or whatever, I just want to do things that make the world a better place. And I hope that when I die, that I would have left the world a better place than before I was born. And I think that's a great idea. It's like, oh, like, if, if you're always, your trajectory is what will do the least harm to people or what will do the most good and just choose that. Like, I think you'll always make the best decision, right? 
maybe not the best decision for yourself always. <laughs> but yeah, you'll typically make the best decision. Awesome. Great perspectives. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions, what would they be? Digital video education. So little do YouTubers know right now that there's this parallel online video industry that's making way more money than they are. And so the idea is like people only have so much time to uh, take in entertainment content, right? Because like I only have so much time to be entertained during the day. But people are always looking for something to make them better, make them more money, make them uh, feel as if they're being productive, right? And if that content is entertaining, they'll buy it, even if it doesn't make them any of those things. And they'll buy it at a high premium. I mean, textbooks sell for one, two, three hundred dollars a book, right? Like if you turn that to digital, you could sell a course for a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars, right? And there are some people in online video right now, particularly in YouTube specifically, that are doing this. And I can't talk about it right now, but it's going to be absolutely brilliant when people see it and people are going to be copying this in six months. But yeah, I think that's probably the biggest place. I mean, aggregation of video on demand. So it's like you have your Hulu, your Netflix, your Crackle. And at some point, someone like Google or Apple is going to be like, how about we just make this into TV again, right? And so finding some way to license these all back into an experience that is TV-like for users who haven't moved over or to make it easier for people who don't necessarily have subscriptions to all these things. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that I was going to bring up too is this, you know, we had this content unbundling and now I think (laughs) we're going to see the rebundling come back at you and With the skinny bundles and the, the all skinny the bundles, bundling. yeah i mean we've you know seen youtube unplugged being announced so i think this skinny bundling or rebundling or even genre bundling is definitely going to be something that we'll be seeing in the future any other predictions tracy i mean i think the most obvious one this is not a prediction since it's happening now but i think the most talked about is you know vr and ar obviously and that's going to be a really interesting one from the privacy standpoint too you know even recently Senator Al Franken wrote a letter to Oculus inquiring as to their privacy practices and what types of data they're collecting and is it really necessary to make Oculus what it is. And it's interesting because you do need to collect more data, like peripheral body data, to so that the Oculus understands where your arms are and what it's doing. And so you do need to collect more data but what does that mean sort of for the future? So I think it's really interesting from both, you know, business standpoint and legal standpoint. And really, you know, we've seen a lot of experiential content coming out with VR and AR. Um, we have yet to see, I think, linear storytelling being successful. So if someone can pull that off, that's going to be exciting. I'm excited to see what Google's going to do with Daydream for mobile, you know, VR. So all, all things that are sort of formulating right now, it feels like back in the day when video game consoles were first starting and it was this console war between them. Now we have sort of the VR headset war and what sort of uh, VR content is going to win the day and consoles or headsets going to win the day. One thing that I'm excited about is, uh, so VR with live streaming, right? And so I think that another big thing, I mean, the future is already happening with uh, Twitch deciding, oh, we're not just video games, or you do anything on the platform. And so people are cooking, people are playing concerts and everything. But imagine 
where you have this living room concert with the person who's like, it's like, oh, this guy only has 10 fans, right? She only has 10, 12 fans, but all 12 fans can all buy VR headsets and all be sitting in the same room. And also, instead of making money through her music, right, she makes money because she sells a bunch of Oculus Rifts, right? Like, oh, these things are actually monetizable, right? I get $100 for everybody who comes in, right, who buys my package or buys this equipment to help. So I think that's going to be cool. Yeah, I agree. It sounds like VR, AR, online video education, bundling of content, and continued growth of digital video across boundaries. If you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? You know, it's funny because you've asked me this question before and my answer was, if I knew what that was, James, I would build it so that I could be super successful and, you know, ruling the world right now in digital video. So I still do not have an answer for you. Online education, 100%. I think that there is a huge opportunity with Creative Commons and... Right now, you okay, again, not to go back to textbooks, but you have textbooks selling for $100, $200, $300, even digital textbooks, right? Because we have a monopoly between uh, McGraw-Hill Pearson and whatever other textbook company there is, and they just tell you how much information should cost. But secretly, there's this cabal of professors decentralized all over the world who've created all of these Creative Commons textbooks, uh, essentially wikis of these, but like authoritative wikis because it's like, oh, these are just these people, their only specialty is to do this and it's a closed system. So suddenly you have literal textbooks that are as good or better than these things, way more up to date than these things, and they're all free. And if you could find some, and, but nobody's reading them, right? Nobody's adopting them because there's no economic incentive for somebody to go into these schools and say, oh, you should adopt this textbook because these companies have huge teams to make sure that they stay in schools, right? And so if somebody could figure out a way to connect on-demand online video education with all of these free materials with somehow getting this stuff into schools, I think that would be an incredible idea. What is the ideal business model for that? I think that it would be supported by the students. So the school says you have to use this textbook and we negotiated this certain fee for this whole suite of videos, this whole suite of materials, and now you just have to pay it. So right? it's a transaction. Right, yeah. Just similar to the Yeah, similar to the textbook model. model. Okay, very interesting. Where can people find out more about each of you and the work that you do? You can find me on LinkedIn. It's probably the best place to find me. <laughs> yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. I don't have a website. I deal more with word of mouth. You can also find uh, my nonprofit at newmediarights.org. By the way, everything that I'm saying is not a mouthpiece for new media rights, but uh, I like to name drop them from time to time. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show. Fascinating for me to learn more about the legal profession and some of the key issues that are being debated today. And I hope this has been valuable for our listeners. I think there are so many things that people need to have more information and greater transparency about. So I think this serves as a great primer. And there's much more to learn about these topics. So I encourage people to go out and, and learn and inquire for themselves. But Sean, Tracy, thanks again so much. This has been a blast. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. you